Hey, let me uh, start off by uh, saying it is great to see you. If you're at another one of our 828 campuses, uh, and happy Father's Day to you. At every campus, there are the photo booths. So if you didn't do it before service, you can do it after service. Uh, there's a place out in the lobbies where you can, somebody sit there with an iPad and take your picture and shoot it right to your phone. You can put little emojis, a little ranger on your shoulder, just like we did for Mother's Day. All that stuff is uh, available. Friends, family, you, you go ahead and, uh, and do that, all right? Uh, a couple other things. Uh, summertime is officially here, and so what that means in the life of the church, there's a number of events, so to speak. And so we're like, for example, we have a, a group of students that are actually even right now, they're currently on their way to uh, the Dominican. And so pray for them this week as they're in the uh, Dominican Republic. All right. We've got another group that is leaving this week for Southeast Asia. You pray for them uh, as well. And then lastly, coming up, uh, Franklin just got finished with their vacation Bible school, but the other campuses, vacation Bible school is coming right up. And look at me for a second. I thought about this because vacation Bible schools have been around a long time. We even changed the name to Adventure Week to freshen it up, but look at me a second, parents. Uh, we want to come along. There's nothing more strategic than having us come alongside you and help you disciple the next generation of disciple makers, okay? And so that's what that is about, whether it be student camp or whether it be VBS coming up. Uh, please get your student uh, signed up for that, your child signed up for that. And church, hey, thank you for footing the bill on all that deal. That stuff doesn't happen by accident. So because of your generosity, things like vacation Bible school and student camp and Dominican and all this kind of stuff is able to go on. So, all right, thanks for doing that. That's that's that part. Here's where we're going to be. If I thought about that this week, this 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 week. Uh, if you could go back, those of you that have some years on you, uh, if you could go back and hand a note to your 25-year-old self, what would you tell them? If you had the opportunity to go back and to your 25-year-old self, you could jot some things down and say, hey, I want you to know this going forward based on the experience that you had. If you could kind of do the old back to the future, you know, kind of get in the, get in the, uh, the time machine, go back. Here's what I want to tell you. I thought about that this week. So here's a couple of things I thought about. If I could go back and hand a note to the 25-year-old version of me, here are a few things that I would write. I would uh, write definitely, definitely marry Lori Masters. You will not regret it. All right, definitely do that. Uh, I would say, uh, also would say, take your kids along with you more on ministry trips. Uh, we did it some, but looking back, I'm like, you know what? I should have done it virtually every time that it was, it was safe. Um, Theologically, I would have thought uh, really what Tim Keller says, that God, the gospel is not just a, the diving board of the Christian life, it's the whole pool. All right, I went uh, years in the Christian life uh, not understanding that very biblical concept. It's, all, it's about the gospel. It either uh, it saves you and sanctifies you both. I, I didn't really grasp that for years. And then uh, one other thing I would tell a 24-year-old version of me is, listen, know God, don't just serve God. No God, don't just serve him. Uh, you tend to spend your time accomplishing tasks and crossing off different jobs you've done. Uh, worship and then work, don't worship the work. I would say God wants you to sit and talk with him and sitting and talking with him is not a, a, a start or a precursor of anything and it's not a waste of time at all. That's what I would tell a 25-year-old version of me. Again, here's, here's the idea. We would all in this room, we would all go back and tell that 25-year-old version. Even if you're 26, you would tell that version of you, do this differently if you could go back and relive the past years. The text we're going to look at today, it's actually almost part one of, uh, this, this one's more personal and the second one is a little more uh, principle-based, but the text today contains some things that I would go back and tell a 17-year-old Bruce uh, to know. Uh, if, I came to Jesus at 17. Didn't grow up going to church very often. We were what's called Christers, okay? We'd come Christmas and Easter. That's when we would, uh, that's when we would come. So I didn't, it wasn't a big part of our life. At 17, I came to Christ. And so I looked at this text this week and I thought, these are things that if I could go back and tell a 17-year-old Bruce and that the current Bruce has to revisit all the time, it would be these things. And basically what it is, is uh, what do we have to know what do we have to know in order to grow as a Christian? Now, it's not exhaustive. It's not an exhaustive thing. There's some things we'll look at in the weeks ahead that's like, okay, you got to have this, you got to have this. But these are things that are often overlooked, things that people go, ah, I don't really have it. But I would say this, even in the room today, even at church today, we've got people that in some cases you came to Christ at the same time as maybe your spouse or your sibling and they just shot up in the Christian life. They've grown, they've got great joy, they are growing in their walk, God's using them, and you feel like you're just stuck in neutral. 
Why do I not grow at all? Maybe there's some things here that are the key to say, you know what? I can start fresh again. I can start fresh again. I can't go back and give a note to my 25-year-old self, but because of the gospel, I can go back and start over again. Lamentations 3 says, you know what? God's faithfulness is new every single morning. And so what we're asking is that today would be that morning for you that it would in some ways be a fresh start or restart, whether you're a dad, a mom, a single, a child, whatever it is, how do I start? What do I need to grow? Because God wants you to grow. God wants you to grow, not just older, and it's not automatic. Uh, there are people in here, you've been a Christian for 30 years, and yet you are not nearly as mature or as joyful or any of those things about the Christian life as some people that have been a Christian maybe a year or two years, and you're like, why is that happening? And so uh, today's text is actually going to give us a clue on that. It, we get a peek inside the heart of the Apostle Paul, his love for the church, his love for the local church, a church he really didn't even know personally. He knew him from a distance. He knew their pastor, and their pastor showed some concerns about his church, and Paul's writing them. It's like, this is what motivates me. This is what moves me. And this is really what was the behind the scenes of arguably one of the most impactful lives in the history of mankind. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read about five or six verses, and uh, our TV is, uh, is broken this morning. And so uh, another way we're going to do this, it'll be on the screens. But go ahead, and if you would, one more time. I know this is, not, this is not Pilates, all right? But go ahead and stand, and I'm going to read this section of God's Word, and let's just kind of stand in honor of God's Word. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, you can read along on the screen with me. You can have your Bible in your hand, your, on your phone, whatever it is. Just read along uh, as I read along. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now again, there's gonna be a couple of things that are highlighted here. This first one's probably the most like, what is he even talking about? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now arguably, that is one of the most confusing statements in the entire Bible. We'll circle back around that. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. And by the way, that word minister right there, my translation, that's not the greatest translation because it's actually the word for servant. It's used servant most any other time. It's not the official minister, and it's important as we go through this text. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. We've seen that word before. We'll see it again. Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Two more verses. This is, if you were trying to look for a purpose statement for the Apostle Paul's life, these next two verses, these are his purpose statement. If you were to walk into his office, he didn't have an office, but if he had an office, he would have this on the wall. This is why I'm here. This is what I'm here for. This is my purpose statement. In some ways, this is why you're here. This is why we are here collectively as well. Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. The word toil there means I work to exhaustion. It means this is what my life is about. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Go ahead and uh, take your seat if you would. Thanks for standing there. Let me make a note before we go through here. I, uh, here's, a, here's a confession. There's a process that goes on in preacher. Everybody, every preacher's got their way to get sermons together and how do they go through the text and all this kind of stuff. Um, my way typically is this. As, I've, as I start to work through the text, the outline will sort of present itself. All right, uh, That's one of the things we are, have a strong conviction on is when you read the Bible, we do what's called... Uh, exegetical preaching, which means as you read the text, the, the text, the points of the message are lifted from the text, all right? You're not trying to uh, make a point and then go find a verse to prove it. You are actually reading the text, studying the text, and as you study the text, the points that you need to make are usually too many you can make in one message, but they come from the text. This was a challenge this week because he doesn't write down systemically like he typically does. Typically, he is very easy to outline because he's super systemic. It's like point A, I'm going to talk about point A, point B, I'm going to talk about point B, then I'm going to talk about point C. That's not the way this particular part of Colossians is. It's kind of like riffing in music, all right? It's like a stream of consciousness. He's saying, these are things that are super important to me. 
And then he goes and he kind of goes back and revisits it. But I need some points to be able to actually not chase rabbits all day long. And some rabbits are good to chase. Some rabbits, you just got to avoid the temptation. So what I'm doing, I put about three personal statements that I want you to make to yourself today. Three personal statements to say, you know what, this is who I am. If you're a Christ follower, all three of these things are true of you. Now, they might not be true in practice, but they are true in in, in biblical gospel understanding. These are true of you. So if you're a Christ follower, you can actually say these three statements. The first one I'll tell you on the front end is by far the hardest one, hardest to understand, has the most questions, has done the most damage, and also is like, what does that even mean? So we'll spend a little more time on that. But a couple times I'm gonna hit, we're, we're participatory here. So a couple times I might even say, hey, why don't you say this? I am whatever. And man, just do the preacher a favor. And even if you're at Hendersonville and I can't see you, you still just say, I am, because Marcus is gonna give me a report on whether you actually joined in on the message. So here's where we are. Here's the first one. Just uh, for those of you that like to take notes, point number one out of verse 24, just put the words down there that I am, I am afflicted. I am afflicted. You're like, I don't like this sermon already. Okay, well, let's just, let's get to the point. Verse 24 is the, one of the most unusual verses in the Bible. It has caused, people have built whole theological systems on the back half of this one verse, and we'll get to it in a second. Verse 24 says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, we got to camp here for a second, because based on your background, or even based on the teaching you receive now, it's very easy to think when you come to Christ that it's all like blessings and, and, and chocolate sundaes and everything's awesome from then on. Oftentimes your emotions are so strong and that guilt is gone and the shame is gone. You're like, it can never feel any better than this. And it's like when life hits you in the face, oftentimes believers are like shocked that it's actually not just still hard, but life can even get harder after you come to Christ than it was before you came to Christ. And people are like, you didn't tell me that. You didn't tell me that. You said God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. You didn't tell me that my family was gonna disown me. You didn't tell me that I wouldn't be invited to the same parties anymore. You didn't tell me that people would ridicule my faith at work. You didn't tell me that and it shocks people. And even if some years go by, and you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray and God doesn't answer the prayer that you prayed for this or that or this cancer or that job or this sibling or whatever and it doesn't happen. You're like, that's shocking and people have walked away from the faith. I've been doing this ministry deal 30 years and I'm realizing that people either grow or they go when it comes to a difficulty in their life. When they're a Christian, they're either gonna, they're either gonna, they're just gonna grow. I mean, think back. We don't like it, but think back. I mean, think back, uh, the times you grew the most, we can say, you know what, that wasn't the funnest time, but I grew the most. But you and I all know people, and maybe you're one of those people as well. Something happened that you did not expect. And it's kind of like we talked about last week. The God that I know, the God that I worship, the Jesus that I read about would never do this. And so I want to kind of talk, talk about that for a second. We won't answer all the questions, but here in the text it says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Now, last week in Colossians, what we said was that one of the questions that the Colossians had was, Paul, if you're God's messenger, if you're God's man, if you're like the apostle Paul, how come you're in prison? I mean, if you're all of that, if you're that good and you're supposed to do all this right stuff and good stuff, how come you're in a stinking jail cell? Because as best we knew, prisoners and bad people go to jail, not God's people go to jail. And so it was kind of throwing them for a loop. And he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, I gotta tell you, you're like, what? I rejoice about a lot of stuff. I rejoice about, uh, I rejoice about Papa Cita's Mexican food down in Atlanta. I rejoice in that. I rejoice. Anytime anybody goes to Atlanta and they bring back sauce and chips, I rejoice, okay? I rejoice when my Texas Tech Red Raiders like win a ball game, okay? I rejoice in that. I see them up there. I'm like, yeah, carrying the state of Texas. Once again, I kind of rejoice in that. I rejoice when you finish a run, all right? I rejoice. Running's not fun. I've been running for years, and it's still not fun. What's fun is finishing, and so then I rejoice. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, we've got to ask the question. When a statement like that is made, what is his purpose? What is he saying? I rejoice in my sufferings. What is he? I mean, is he a glutton for punishment? I honestly, just true confessions, before I came to Christ, I would see Christians that to me, they would walk around. It's like, oh, I'm so happy. I got cancer. Praise God. 
Praise God that I got in the car. Praise God that I love you. And they would have all, and I just didn't believe it, honestly. When I would look at that, most of the time as a cynic, I would say, faker, faker, you're faking it. That can't be real at all. And yet the guy we see here, he probably knew more. He had like a PhD in suffering. Not only before he came to Christ, he was the one giving the affliction. If you just remember a little bit of Bible history, before he was the one going and causing affliction to Christians. And then once he came to Christ, he was the one receiving affliction because he did come to Christ. So he knew what this was about. But he also could read his Bible. I'm not trying to hammer on any particular preacher. Let me just say this, as I've said a hundred times, is this is such the fallacy, this is such the damage of the prosperity gospel when it teaches all of this stuff to say, you know what, if you believe enough and if you know Jesus enough, then you will not suffer. And the only problem with that is the Bible. That's the problem with it. It's the whole Bible. I thought about reading all the verses about it, and I can just, let me give you a couple of summations. One third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Lament means immense sorrow. It's like, man, I don't understand why you're allowing this to happen, God. And I love you and I'm singing to you, but Psalm 73, you know what? When I looked and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, my foot almost slipped. I mean, that's David, okay? It's like, man, I don't understand why that guy's getting a raise and I'm getting laid off and I've been trustworthy with my finances and I'm the one whose business goes belly up. I mean, that's the struggle. And so uh, one third of the Psalms have Psalms of lament. Every Old Testament prophetic book in the Bible, except the book of Haggai, has a lament in there. You're like, well, what, what is this? What, what is this all about? Again, there's so many questions. Let me try to give you a couple of things in this one. When you look at pain and suffering in the Bible, it is not a neat, tidy, systematic theology. Okay, so that's why there's a myriad of questions. We've taught on this not hundreds of times, but I would say dozens of times, dozens of times. And this won't answer all your questions, but I think this might help. There are probably, uh, there's probably 10 or 12 shades of meaning and categories of suffering and affliction in the Bible. Let me give you like four or five that might be helpful, okay? When you look in the Bible and you see different shades of meaning and examples in the Bible, let's, let's take three or four or five, okay? First one is you see in the Bible is you see what's called common suffering, okay? Common suffering. Common suffering is that goes on every single person, whether they're Christian or not Christian, okay? It's because you and I live in a fallen world, all right? Common suffering. It's like when the tornado hits the town, you know, it doesn't avoid the church. I remember a number of years ago, a televangelist was talking about, that was God's judgment that, uh, God's judgment that took across that, you know, took across that strip bar, took this away or whatever. <laughs> the problem with that is what happens like the next year when a tornado takes his house away, okay? Or what happens when it, when it levels the church? That's called common, common affliction. We live in a fallen world. This is not heaven. There are going to be trials just because you're part of the human race. The second one would be what we can call consequential suffering. Consequential suffering is you and I make a foolish decision. This is the biblical concept of you'll reap what you sow. The book of Proverbs talks about this all the time. If I choose this and I sow into this and I do this all the time, eventually that's going to come back and I'm going to have some consequences for it. Okay? If I go down Hendersonville Road at 75 miles an hour, guess what? There's a chance that I'm going to get a ticket. Okay? That ticket is not, it is not God disciplining you. Okay? It's not common affliction. That's consequential, all right? I didn't get a ticket going 75. You got a ticket. Why? Because you were reaping what you were sowing. <laughs> not that that would be germane to anybody doing that in this church at all, okay, going that fast. All right, uh, correcting discipline. Correcting discipline is God's loving hand of discipline to his sons and daughters. Again, we've taught on this. Hebrews chapter 12 says, those who God loves, God chastens. God, those who God loves, God disciplines, all right? What parent, what parent never disciplines their child, all right? I tell you what, a bad parent never disciplines their child. That's what happens. Proverbs says, you know what? If you never discipline your child, you hate your child. And it's recognizing the fact that, you know what? You just love you more than you because you don't want to go through all the grief that it takes to discipline properly a child. But God disciplines his kids, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, all right there. The part that is in this passage, though, is not, it's not common suffering, okay? It's not, it's not even consequential suffering because he hadn't anything wrong at all. And it's not even God's chastisement of him. What we call this kind of suffering and affliction is called Christian suffering. It's suffering that Paul is having simply because he's a Christ follower. He actually is suffering something that he would not have suffered had he not been a Christ follower. 
Now, this is all over the Bible, folks. This is the part I got to say. It's all over the Bible. First uh, Peter chapter four says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes among you as if something strange were happening to you. And then he says, don't suffer as an evildoer or a murderer or a meddler or a gossip. But if you suffer for the name of Jesus, then God's glory and God's blessing is on you. That's a whole different deal. Paul would tell a young pastor, listen, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Into the Sermon on the Mount. It says, you know, blessed are you when men cast insults at you. Such were the prophets before you. So here it is. Paul is not in prison because he did something wrong. It's because he did something right. He was preaching the gospel. Now listen to me. We're gonna get, I wanna be precise in the statements because I understand when you're dealing with hurt and anger and a lot of stuff might be coming up, I wanna be sensitive. And it's hard to be sensitive when you got like five minutes to deal with something as big and massive. And that's why I was like, man, we could take like all of these and make one sermon out of them. But listen carefully. Though God may not cause your affliction, he can use your affliction for his glory, for your growth, listen to me, and what you see in this case is for others' good. Let me say this again. This is hard truth, all right? All right, you're not gonna, you're, <laughs> you're not gonna get this at so, uh, 1-800 and send me a prayer cloth. You're not, gonna, you're not gonna get this, all right? So let me say it again. Even though God, he allowed it, let's just say that, God definitely allowed the affliction. He can use the affliction one of three ways, for his glory, for your growth. In this case, it's very clear it was for other people's good. Because what does he say? He says, I rejoice in my suffering. What's the next little phrase say right there in your Bible? What does it say? What does it say? For your sake. So he says there's a reason behind it. Here's the biggest thing you gotta know when it comes to just pain. And we can talk all day about pain. pain. Sometimes pain's for a day, sometimes pain's for a season, sometimes pain's for the rest of your life. Every single pain. When you're a Christ follower, there's not a single pain that is not father filtered into your life and every time you have pain, there's a purpose behind it. Your pain has a purpose. I'm not saying that you get to see the purpose right down here. You might not. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But let me give you some things that it's not. When we're talking about the idea of rejoicing and suffering, it's not optimism. It's not pure optimism. Optimism is the assumption that tomorrow will be better just because it's tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow, you know, you're, it's, that's, that's optimism. The sun will come out tomorrow. Well, maybe it won't, okay? What if tomorrow is as bad as today is for you? It's not pure optimism. It's not stoicism either. Stoicism is I'm gonna detach myself from anybody that I'm gonna love and anybody that I'm gonna, accept, I'm gonna have pain from. I'm just gonna be a stoic. I'm not gonna react. I'm just gonna detach myself from that. That's not Christianity. That's Buddhism, by the way. That's not Christianity. Christianity actually leans into love, even loving people that might even cause you some pain. And so uh, here's what the joy comes from. Knowing a good and powerful God is using this and you can rejoice when you're confident that here's the key. You can rejoice when you're confident that what you gain from the pain is worth it. It's worth it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm in this prison for your sake, but it's worth it. Now we know this. We just don't see it very often. Some of you uh, just got through with finals. And you just got through with finals and some of you burned the midnight oil, you pulled on nighters, you drank 10 cups of coffee and you suffered, if you will, you suffered in school over these last few weeks. Why? Because you wanna get a good grade and then you wanna get a diploma and then you wanna get a good job. But it wasn't like, oh, I love pulling all nighters. That was not it at all. You love what the end result was. That's why Paul says, I don't rejoice because of my sufferings. I rejoice in the midst of them. Why? Because I know a good and gracious and powerful God is doing something in them. Some of you guys out here are gonna be going through two-a-days here pretty soon. And nobody at two-a-days, I promise, nobody in two-a-days is like, I love this throbbing headache in my head from this helmet. Nobody's saying that. Man, I love this. This is just so awesome that I can barely get out of bed. They're not saying that at all. But what they're reminding themselves of and their teammates are reminding themselves of constantly is, you know what, it's worth it, it's worth it, it's worth it. We got a game coming in September. We're gonna be in the district come later on in the fall. We're gonna win this thing and when we're hoisting that trophy, we'll look back in two days in August and say, it is worth it. Now again, I know it's Father's Day, but let's take the obvious one and uh, mothers, okay? Um, I was told 
before our first child was born, that birth was beautiful. That's what I was told. I knew no better. It's like, oh, birth, our babies are beautiful. Births are beautiful. It's just, an, it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, you know, I've been, I obviously, I never had a baby, but we, I've been, I've been in the room for two of them. And beautiful is not the, not the adjective that I would use. It's just, it's, it's not the adjective. But when I was watching Tyler get born, I was like, doctor, is that supposed to be happening? I mean, is, is that, that, that's, is that the baby? Is that the, is that the, his head is a cone and my wife's head spun around three times trying to push the baby out. Is that what's supposed to happen? Now here's, here's what, it's going to be a great Father's Day for me, I can tell. But here's what I would say. Here's what I would say is, listen, um, I can't believe I said that. Okay, here's, here's what I would, there's not a mom in here that, I mean, again, it's, to me, it's, it's scary, but you look around and you ask a, I mean, you, you go, who would do that voluntarily? Who would do that voluntarily? And who would call that process beautiful? And every mom in here would say, you know what? I would, I would. I'm gonna just kind of forget about it and I can wave away the suffering and say to their child, if that is what it took to bring you into the world, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. You were totally, totally worth it. That's what Paul is saying about his kids in the ministry, his kids in the gospel, to say, you know what, it's totally worth it. My suffering is either a good example, we don't know exactly how it was a benefit to them, but Paul's like, I feel about you, Colossians. I know it's producing in you the church. Now, we don't pursue suffering for suffering's sake. We pursue Jesus, and suffering accompanies that. And what Paul is saying is basically this, my joy is the fact that I will give up some comforting things that I like, like a good food or like you know, my comfort. I will give that up gladly if I know that it will benefit someone else. If I know it will benefit the church and then specifically, I'll tell you one of the most, read sometime Romans 9 and he actually says this. Paul says, I wish myself accursed for my brethren's sake. And you read the context around it, here's what he says. He's thinking about his Jewish brothers who don't know Jesus, and he says, I wish I could go to hell if it could take you out of hell. Man, that is some love. That's saying, I will suffer if somehow I could trade places with you. So when you look at it, I'm afflicted. Here's what you gotta know. You're like, well, what, what is the reason I'm suffering for? And I can tell you, people are like, why, why, why am I suffering? I don't know, I don't know the reason. You're going through something. I don't know why that is. I, don't, I can't sit there and go, you know what? Here's what that means. I can't tell you all the time. I can't tell you most of the time. I can't even tell me most of the time. I can tell you two things you know you can eliminate and you can know that it can't mean. It can't mean that God has forgotten you, all right? The cross of Jesus shows you that when you're going through that, he is not moving away from you, that he has adopted you into his family. The cross can show, you know what? I know even in spite of the evidence, he's not forgotten me. He loves me, he cares for me. The cross proves that, okay? You can also look at, you can look at your situation and look at the cross. You can look at the resurrection and the resurrection says, I know it can't mean that God is not involved in my life, all right? The resurrection shows me that God will complete what he has started and he is not finished with me yet. So I know he hadn't forgotten me and I know he hasn't been done away with me. So that's what I can eliminate and then we can kind of figure out what I'm supposed to do, all right? It's not, not, not about what, what is it, what is it? It's about who are you making me? Now, before we go on to the next one, the next one's a little bit shorter. I know some of you are like, what does that one part of that verse mean? This is where that if you preach through a book, you're like, you know, if I wasn't preaching through a book, I'd probably skip that verse because I'm like, what does that even mean? And here's what it says. Let's just, I mean, the verse is what it is. So let's pull the bus over for just a second and let's take a little bit of a, a tour in that. So the end of verse 24, here's what it says. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. What is that? What does that mean? Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Now, here's a quick little Bible study rule. If there's a verse in the Bible that is unclear, then you let the preponderance of all the clear verses give commentary on the unclear verse. So the best commentary, before you go to 10 different places, what do you think about it? What do you think about it? Then look and see what it could mean or what it, is there anything similar in the Bible or is it telling me something opposite? So if you know your Bible at all, the Bible is super clear that Jesus did everything necessary to save you. When he pushed himself up and says, it is finished, it means he has totally satisfied the law and the justice of God. 
So what is lacking is the best that I can tell is the message of what Christ did on the cross was gonna cost his people something to push it out. That's the best thing I can do. You're like, I don't think it means that. I don't, I, okay, we can just agree to disagree. You're like, well, exactly what does it mean? That seems to be the best thing. We know it doesn't mean we're kind of, people have built whole systems on this thing. You know what, I gotta suffer to make up for what Jesus didn't do on the cross. That can't be it, because the Bible repeats. We studied Galatians all last summer. All that last summer, it was like Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So we can't add anything to it. Here's what I would just say this. Here's a quote by a guy named Francis Chan about this whole idea of suffering, and then we'll go to this next one. Christians are people who believe in life after death. The church is a bride that believes the groom is returning and he is going to take her away to be with him for all of eternity. Our confidence in this truth produces actions that look stupid to an unbelieving world. Our hope motivates us to suffer. We understand the brevity of life and eagerly hope for a glorious eternity. We are sure of it. We are betting everything on it, even our lives. So you can say pretty easily, I'm afflicted. The second one, some of you are not going to want to say it, so I'm going to make you say it. I'm going to shame you into saying it, okay? And so we're going to read these next ones and believe it or not. You can't just say, I'm afflicted. The Bible, if you're a Christ follower, actually says, I know we got a lot of backgrounds in here. Biblically speaking, the Bible says if you are a Christ follower, you can confidently, not arrogantly say, I am a saint. I'm a saint. You're like, you don't know my father-in-law, but I'm just saying, I am a saint. If you're a Christ follower, I am a saint. You're like, how does that even work? All right, this is about the fourth time he said it in here. So look at verse 25 and 26. Let me give you an overview, and then I'm gonna make some application. To me, this is it. If I knew this as a 17-year-old new Christian, this would have saved me so much. It would have saved me so much grief. Verse 25 says this, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, this is the part you kind of underline. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. All right, here's a 60-second overview of the Old Testament. All right, here's 60 seconds. This is the Old Testament in 60 seconds. Here's kind of the way that you're talking about the mystery right there. The mystery that he's talking about is in, in Genesis, God comes to Abraham and tells him, I'm going to bless all the nations through the nation that he would form out of Abram. Abram name turns to Abraham. Abraham then basically is the father of the Jewish race, father of Israel. Israel grows, they grow so much the Egyptians who had enslaved them. They get nervous. God calls Moses, bust my people out. He busts them out of all of that slavery in Egypt. They go into the promised land. They go around for a while. God gives them laws to show how they would flourish. They continue to break those laws. He then instituted the sacrificial system, the sacrificial system, all the bulls and goats, et cetera, et cetera. The whole time, Israel is thinking that this whole thing is national. The whole time they're thinking, that's our God, that's our God, that's our God and our God only despite the fact that repeatedly in the Old Testament, he's like, Israel, you're gonna be a blessing to the whole world, not just you. But he got very, very, very nationalistic. The mystery comes and the mystery was there until Jesus comes, fulfills the law, goes to the cross as a substitute, is resurrected, and then sends the Holy Spirit. And so the tension in the book of Acts is when Peter preaches, when we went to the book of Acts, Peter preaches, all these people get saved. Listen to me, they're all Jewish early on. Virtually all of them are Jews that get saved early on. It's not until Acts 10 that a non-Jew, a Gentile, actually comes to faith in Christ, and then the whole thing is, is revealed. So the mystery is, in the Old Testament, if you're going to worship the God of the Bible, you had to become Jewish. In the New Testament, the mystery that's unveiled is Jesus comes, because see, that's where the Jews and Gentiles, we're going to use this in a series uh, coming up, the Jews and the Gentiles, they hated each other. The Jews were like, we don't want no dirty dog Gentile following our God. The Gentiles looked at the Jews and was like, I don't want to become a Jew to follow the God of the Bible. So Jesus comes and makes a third race. It's called a Christian. The third race is a Christian. That is the identity. It's not I'm a Jew first or I'm a Gentile first or I'm this or that. He says, I am, I'm a Christian. That's why he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here's what I want you to do. When you think I'm a saint, that's talking about identity. When you look in the mirror, who do you see yourself as? Now, one of my favorite movie series are called The Born Identity. I think that was the first one. They had Born Identity, Jason Bourne, The Born Supremacy. All, you know, it's like, you know, whatever. It's more than Rocky movies almost. But the first Born movie was basically, it started off with a guy named Jason Bourne that didn't know who he was. 
He had amnesia. He forgot who he was. And so the whole thing was, I got to find out who I am. Who am I? Who am I? And I'm like, that is the problem with many of us as followers of Jesus. We are continually forgetting who we are in Jesus and replacing it with stuff that never, ever, ever fulfills us. And so let me just show you in the text here what he tells you about you. Verse 22, which we didn't read, but verse 22 says, you've been reconciled. You are holy and blameless. You are above reproach. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are like, okay, you don't know what I did last week. So how can that be the case? I want you to look at a uh, cartoon. I've shown you this one time before. This is the best, I believe, uh, Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation, he kind of came out with this, but this is actually a great picture. It's, it's, they translated the Latin into English, which means simultaneously justified and sinful. So leave that up there for a second. What you have is you have obviously what Jesus did on the cross, and then that's you and I with that big picture, and we're quaking a little bit. It's like, I have my sin, I have my sin, I have my sin. But when it says you are holy and you are blameless and you are above reproach, he's not talking about your activity at that point. I mean, honestly, can anybody in here say, you know what? If you look over my life over the last six months, that's the way I would describe myself. I am holy and blameless and above reproach. I'm, I'm blameless in front of Almighty God. Loved one, I don't mean to tell you that, but you're a liar and the truth is not in you because the only person that could say that is Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point. The point is, when Jesus died on the cross and then when you repented and embraced him, God then looks at you in the same way with the same resume as what Jesus has. So when we sing those songs and then we have like 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that's what it means when it says it made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what it means. That means that you're, and see, here's the whole part of the, once you become a Christian, how does God start to make my identity and my activity start to get closer and closer together? Or even better yet, how does my activity start to flow from who I already know as my identity in Christ? So uh, my buddy Jetty Greer, he's preached here before, he'll preach here again, but he's got a book out called Gospel. You need to read it if you hadn't read it. Here's what he says. He's got a little prayer in there, and here's part of it, and I don't know how to say it any better. In Christ, there is nothing I can do that would make you, meaning God, you love me more, and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. That is a great prayer to pray. If you understand the gospel... If you don't understand the gospel or if you've never repented and embraced Christ, that is not true about you. But if you're a Christ follower, even if you had a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, in Christ, there is nothing I can do to make you love me more. You know what? You can have a hundred different quiet times. You can can give a ton of money. There's nothing you can do to say, you know, I love that guy even more. You can't blow it any worse to say, you know what? He loves me less. All right, here's, that's what saint means. It's not what's done to me. It's what Jesus has done for me. And so the word saint is about identity. I gotta, I gotta go quick here, so listen quick. Okay, this is probably, these next two sentences, I want, I'm gonna repeat them twice. Listen to them. This is the one that's like, we're gonna hit it again for like a whole series sometime. The bad news, the bad news is, listen to me, the bad news is, Christians, we are sinners. That's the bad news. Even after Christ, we are still sinners. The good news is we are not just sinners. I'll give you a little theological trivia here. Every time the word sinner is used in the Bible except three, and those three are kind of, you can look at those three a couple of different ways. God actually refers, when he says sinner, he's talking about the person before he's embraced Christ, not afterwards. There's three times possibly that mean he's actually calling the saint a sinner, all the other times, when he says sinner, it's talking about a BC. It's somebody before Christ. So here's the way we're going to put it. A saint does sin, but a Christian is one who has, listen to this, a Christian is one who has saint as their constant identity and has sin as their occasional activity. Please get that down. If you're a Christian, Your identity, 24-7 is, I'm a saint. Your occasional activity will be, I've sinned. And as a matter of fact, the way you operate after you've sinned really shows, do you understand the gospel? I didn't know this. I did not practice this probably until five or six years ago even. I was steeped in performance. I was steeped in the fact that I messed up. 
I was like that dog I've talked about last week, the grace dog and the law dog. When I messed up, what I did was sit there. I was like the dog that would tuck his tail when the master would come in, and I'd run to the car. It's like, oh, no, because I messed up, and he knows, and what's going to happen? I would run from God. But when I've started to steep myself and try to saturate myself in the gospel, when I sin and the master comes home, I can run to him knowing that that's a relationship that I have with him, and he's already paid for that sin. It's like the whole T-shirt said, you know what? Uh... I messed up, I messed up, I gotta hide, gotta hide, my dad knows, okay? Versus, versus, I messed up, my dad knows, I gotta run to him. That's the difference between whether you understand what's conviction, which is good, or condemnation, which is not good, unless you don't know Christ, and then condemnation is trying to get you to conviction. Conviction says this, conviction says this, you messed up. Conviction is from God, by the way. You're like, I've never been convicted. God's never put his finger in my chest. He's never put me in a headlock and said, we're gonna deal with this. He's never done that. That's not a good thing to be in. If God's never convicted you of an action or an attitude or a word or anything, then, then loved one, you're, you, don't know, you don't know Jesus, all right? I mean, whoever would think that, oh, my dad hadn't talked to me in 20 years. You know why? Because he's not your dad yet. You can change that today. So conviction is this. You are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach, you are a saint, and now he's saying live that way. Live that way. Okay, before we go to the last one, a couple I've seen, I saw three people here at Arden doze off. So just, if they're dozing off, just to make them feel better, uh, go ahead and look to the person. And this will, this will be great. Just look to the person and say, I think, um, instead of you are a saint, just look to the person and go, I'm a saint. One, two, three. <laughs> Don't shake your head. Don't shake your head. I see some of you like, no, no, you're not. No, you're not. It's between them and God right now. Last one is this, and I'm going to read you the story. Um, okay, I'm afflicted. I'm afflicted. I am a saint. And here's the, what you see in the last two verses is I am a missionary. I'm a missionary. I almost said I'm a minister, but I thought that freaked you all out too much. I'm a minister. But actually, biblically, both are true. Biblically, both are true. Verse 28 and 29, did you not see what he was saying? It says, we proclaim him. We proclaim him. As I said in verse 25, servant is a better translation than minister. And then he says, you've been given a stewardship, which is an individual assignment, something for you. Here's the way to put it. If you're a Christ follower, listen to me, you are in ministry. You are in ministry. People are like, how many pastors do you all have on staff? And I know what they mean. I know what they mean. They mean how many vocational Ephesians chapter four, equipping type of pastors do we have? I understand what they're saying. Listen to me carefully. Our calls are different, but you are in ministry just like I'm in ministry. You are a minister. You're like, how are you gonna tell me that? I'm telling you that because the New Testament says that's what you are. First Peter chapter two, it says, we Christians, you are a royal priesthood, a called out nation. The great commission was given to us. And so when we think about our church, I read a stat this week that Airbnb has a fraction of the employees that hotels have, a fraction. I saw they had like 2,000 employees. I think it was Hyatt had like 93,000, but put them all together, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of employees. And yet Airbnb actually had a ton more rooms then all of the hotel chains combined, the top five combined. What's the difference? The difference was they got the business into the hands of the people so that anybody with a smartphone could lease out a room. That's what the church is supposed to be about. The church is not supposed to be a bunch of professionals talking to a crowd. It's supposed to be, we talk to a crowd, equip them, and then you go out and you're on mission during the day. That's the way the church, here's what's happened. That's the way it was for hundreds of years. And then the dark ages happened, and all of a sudden the church said, we're the professionals. We're the professionals. You guys are the people. We're the professionals. But then around 15, 1600s, all of a sudden they rediscovered the Bible, and it's like, no, look in the Bible. The Bible is the people are priests as well. The people are missionaries as well. The people are ministers as well. And so uh, here it is. You were a disciple maker. You got one job. That's our one job. You're like, what's our job? What's our job as a church? We got one job. So real quickly, just that little humor, I saw some pictures and uh, 
Here, you know, that whole thing. You had one job. You had one job. You had one job. Okay, so here's, you had one job. So you had one job. Messed it up. It's like, you had one job. Here's another one. Um, you had one job. But you had one job. Just put the cheese on. That. I don't even know what that is. A filet of fish or something. I don't know what that is. You had one job. Here's, I love this one. You had one job. It was like made into America, okay? Made in America. You had one job. And this is probably the best one. It'll take a second. You had one job. Just write happy birthday. So here's what I say. It's like you had one job, church. We have one job. Uh, there's a guy named Joby Martin who said this, and he'll be preaching here at the end of August uh, here at Biltmore Church, and I love this. I read this from him this week. He said, the best way to deepen your relationship with Jesus is to help someone discover theirs. Man, that's the best way to deepen your relationship with Jesus is to help somebody else discover their relationship with Jesus. Now, I know this frees some of us out, so let me try to make this it's easier than we think. Being a Christian means that everything in life changes, but living as a Christian doesn't mean you change everything, everything about your activity. You're like, what do you mean by that? Okay, everything changes when you become a Christian, but you still do a lot of the things you did before you were a Christian, okay? You eat, you work, you go to the grocery store, you raise kids, you do all that stuff. But when it comes to what Paul's saying is I labor and toil and I wanna present people complete in Jesus what he's saying is I understand that every day I'm on mission. We talk about, hey, they're in the Dominican. Hey, they're in Asia. Hey, we're going over to Ecuador, and that's awesome. What you gotta kinda grasp, though, to grow is every time you walk out of these doors, and actually sometimes even when you're inside these doors, you are a missionary. Biblically, you are a, you are a minister. And so what happens is day by day, meal by meal, conversation by conversation, all you do is you basically walk toward Jesus with intentionality and you do it with people. That's discipleship. Discipleship is much less of a program than it is actually a relationship that I'm having with you. And so you watch me and you know if I know how to pray and I know how to read my Bible, just watch me do it. And it's not perfect, but I'm actually discipling you. That's why parenting is such a discipleship deal. I mean, you're a parent discipling your kids. It's not the only discipleship you do, but it's super important. Here's the last thing. We've got a sign at every campus and everybody's like, okay, we say this all the time, all the time, all the time. And it's like, you're loved and you're sent. You're loved and you're sent. You're loved and you're sent. I say it at the end of every service. Your campus pastor says it at the end of every service. It's at the, it's every, when you leave here, it's by the coffee shops. It's all of that. Not only is that a true statement, because we want you to understand I'm loved by God, that's my identity, but then my activity is I'm sent out into the world. Don't ever underestimate what one small thing will do. Don't sit there and go, well, I got this. I, I, one story that I came up, this uh, was emailed actually to my wife and then she sent it to me. And so I'm gonna, I asked permission to use it. Um, but I thought this is, this is exactly what he's saying. And this was a, uh, actually a direct message uh, to uh, I think my wife and then to uh, Mandy Hayes out at Hendersonville and to Pastor Marcus out there. But here's, here's what it says. It said, my son is an addict and has been for about seven years. He recently relapsed again after being clean for just a few months. He was repairing the air conditioning at the Arden campus yesterday morning, about a week ago, and called me crying saying he needed to go to rehab. Of course I jumped on it, this is his mom, of course I jumped on it and set up an appointment. But I asked him what made him make this decision. He has never believed in rehab and was adamant that he didn't need it even as recent as last Tuesday. He said that when he was at Biltmore yesterday, he saw the sign between the coffee counter and the sanctuary that said, you are loved and you are sent. Do you have any clue what this means to my husband and I? I've recently begun praying that we would not have to bury my 24-year-old son. We have held on to this for seven years and asked God to take this burden away. And the fact that he's taken this burden away has meant everything to me. For that sign to be there has meant that my son has an opportunity to be clean and be the person that I know that God wants him to be. Thank you for your provision over the campuses, even down to the simplest thing as a sign. That sign means life or death to our family. All right. So here's what that is. You are loved and you are sent. I want you to bow your heads for a second. Campus pastors, you're gonna pray 
over the campus that God has entrusted to you. I want you to pray specifically for dads and granddads. Father, right now, I want to pray for uh, the men and women in this room. God, I pray that they would be deeply stained by the fact that my pain has a purpose, has a purpose. I have a God behind all of this who is good and powerful. Minister to them in their pain. Show them that you are rolling up your sleeves and moving toward them in the midst of their affliction. God, I pray you would help us to remember that we are saints by the blood of Jesus. Know that as our identity, so it does change our activity. God, I pray as we leave here in a few minutes, whether it be to our kids or to our neighborhoods or to our ball team, we would understand we are sent and everything matters, everything matters. The tip we leave, the smile we give, the conversation we have, the prayer that we pray, the love that we show, everything matters. So God, I pray even for our town, I pray for this city that you've allowed us to be a part of, that as we leave this safe place, we would understand we are sent, we are missionaries. God, I pray specifically for the dads and the granddads and even the great granddads in here. God, I pray that you would take all of their regrets and have them be a new beginning this morning. That you are the God that can restore the years that have been eaten by the locusts. That today would be the day that dads and granddads and future dads would say, you know what, I wanna be God's man. I wanna be the man that God made me to be. I wanna break the chain of the dysfunction that has been in our family for years. And by the grace of God, I'll be that man. God, I pray you would encourage us to be quick to repent quick to apologize, quick to forgive. God, we pray for the, the months coming up that it would be the most glorious days of your church that we've ever seen. But I pray you'd start with the families and start today. In Jesus' name, amen.